from that perspective. Um, there was a, a huge fear that gripped our country, um, and that fear was that, that every computer, including airliners, you guys remember this? And everyone's laughing right now, right? Like every computer would roll over from 99 to 00, zero and suddenly realize it hadn't been invented yet, and the airplanes would fall out of the sky, and light bulbs would stop working, and we would all die a horrible, fiery death. Do you guys remember this? Some of y'all. The, the, the phrase was? And it was dumb. Can we all agree on that? Like, it, it was a whole lot of nothing. Like, the world did not end. The, the foundations of, of culture and society didn't crumble. The alphabet didn't stop working. The world, you know, like, there were, and there were people, like, and I read about this. Uh, I remember at the time reading and thinking, this is insane. There were people who cashed out their life savings and bought generators and food that they're still eating to this day. Um, and, they, and they prepared for the end of the world. And there are people, I mean, this is not a new thing. Our, that wasn't the last one. There's a, there's a man, some of y'all have heard of him, uh, Jim Baker. We're all, we all heard of this guy. When he got out of prison, he started preaching again because that worked out, I guess. But he sells end-of-the-world food products now. Like, that's his whole gig. Like, hey, look, you can buy these buckets and survive the apocalypse with this food because the world is going to end and you need to survive it. Like, and, and, I mean, if you watch, we don't have a Christian bookstore in the area anymore. They've all gone out of business. But if you, if you go into a standard Christian bookstore, every year there's a new crop of, guess why the world is going to end tomorrow and you need to prepare by sending us money. I don't know. Um, but it's this whole, like, crazy thing. And, and we as a culture, um, I, I read a great book on this, we as a culture have kind of shifted in this direction where we're sort of constantly on edge about everything ending, right? Or all of our freedoms going away and us ending up in, as slaves in concentration camps. Or, you know, if the election, next election doesn't go this way, we're all going to die. And, I mean, it's every time, too. It's ridiculous, right? Like, we, we have kind of evolved into this place where the sky is falling and, and Chicken Little is on the news every night and he's telling us everything's going to end. And, and we're going to jump into Psalm 11, um, and, and we're going to look at uh, what David talks about in this section. And this is a psalm literally about this idea that, that you know, the foundations are going to crumble and, and you're going to die, right? And, and David has some interesting things to say about it. Um, they are not, I think, the standard, uh, what we've grown to expect from, from uh, our culture. It's a very different take, but it is worth looking at. Um, a little bit of – oh, I didn't – a little bit of background real quick. The Psalms, and this is important for this one, the Psalms are kind of like, like the perfect meeting point of humanity and God, right? And I've said this every time we've done a Psalm sermon. This time it really matters because this is a human-like emotional experience, like a song, right? Like most songs are fairly emotional. Um, even if they're silly and funny, there's kind of an emotional component. We sing because we're people, Right? Um, these are people singing their troubles, their joys, their, their you know, exaltations, their everything. And, like, there's this whole human element to the Psalms. And as we read them, it's tempting to divorce that out. Um, but if you do that, you steal from yourself, right? Because the best part of the Psalms is that you can read it, and this is a place where you can connect 
and invest yourself and like draw it into you and like know, hey, other people feel this way. This is, I think, the eighth or ninth psalm I've preached this summer. Did anybody hear any psalms this year, like this summer, that, where you were like, that's exactly how I feel. This is exactly where I'm at, right? Like that is, that is why they're so powerful. And so as we jump into this, Psalm 11, um, we're not sure of the situation. It's possible that there's an uprising. It's possible that there are assassins. It could be describing all kinds of things. Um, it doesn't specify, but we know that things look scary, um, and, and, um, this is, this is David responding and responding as a righteous man. And it's a response that we see repeatedly in the scripture. so we're going to do a little history tour as we go. It'll be fun. Um, so Psalm 11, verse one, uh, for the director of music, this is a Psalm of David, uh, very simple pre, you know, like title. We just know that David wrote it. It may have been a song. It may have actually been a meditation. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of theologians or Bible commentaries that will argue this is not a song they sang. It is a sitting down and repeating it and meditating and thinking about it. So verse one, in the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Now, um, So in the Lord I take refuge, and we actually talked about this a few weeks ago, this idea that God is a refuge. He is a high and rocky place that protects us. He is our safe place we run off to. He he watches, he protects, he takes care of. Like God is there um, with you. The thing is that that we, and like we saw this when we talked about Masada, we like physical protections, right? I mean, like it is it is easy to say God protects my house. It is a lot easier to say that, that God and Remington protect my house, right? I mean, and this is Montana, so, like, it is, it, I mean, it is easy to think, like, like, God and this. And I'm not saying that, like, like, physical protections and all that are a bad thing. You should lock your doors, you crazy Montanans, you should lock your doors. Um, I don't care. Um, I still lock my doors. I'm never going to stop doing that. Like it is just, we, you know, we should be safe and smart. But God is our refuge ultimately. Um, God protects us ultimately. Um, and so then how can you say to me, now this phrase, how can you say to me, is kind of a weird Hebrew thing. And I thought about breaking down all the grammar, but I'm going to just explain it. The way this is phrased, it sort of implies that the speaker is trying to heavily influence David like in his needs and his innermost thoughts and his heart and his feelings and his desires. Like this is a strong urging push like to the core of who he is. It's not an offhand remark. This is a like a serious, hey, do this, you know, arguing, change your heart, be a different person. Um, Flee like a bird to your mountain. Now, um, the the literal rendering, if you were going to like, like, you know how you get Chinese, uh, uh, products from Amazon. Sometimes you read the instructions and they're silly because they're so wooden they don't make sense. You know, or it's just a really bad translation. Uh, Google does that too. They'll translate. It's kind of fun. Um, this is the wooden translation would, of this would be flee to your mountain bird. Um, there's some commentaries that will argue that this is sarcasm. Little birdie, run away. Right? <laughs> Time to flee. Um, it could be that just advisors like, hey, you have no defense. Get out of here. Um, anybody ever gone uh, uh, hunting for uh, huns or doves are probably another example. Like you hunt a pheasant. A pheasant could hurt you if it really wanted to, right? Like, it, I mean, it wouldn't go well. But, you know, the pheasant has, like, these talons. 
um, chickens have talons. Anyway, um, the the but but a hun like it's this tiny little bird, and if you shoot it with too large of a bullet, it'll disintegrate. You know it. So when you when you almost step on a hun, what does it do? It takes off because it's got no other option. It can't turn and fight. It can't anything. It flies, and it flies really fast. That is its number one survival technique: run away. Right? It was like me in junior high. Um, so flee to your mountain. Um, if you think about where Jerusalem is, Jerusalem is in a mountain, and like it is surrounded by mountains. And if you were going to run away and hide, there are lots of places that are really convenient to hide and really inconvenient to search. Right? So whatever is happening in this capital, the advisors are saying, get out of here, run away. You've got nothing. You can't defend yourself. Escape, escape, escape. Run away now. Um, we're going to hit pause before we jump into that. Um, Big Sandy is maybe a little different. Living in big cities, if it was going to snow really hard, the news would tell you, you know, you're all going to die tomorrow because it's going to snow three inches, Right? And then the very next thing you should do is stock up. Run to the grocery store and buy absolutely everything you ha- they have because if you don't have canned cranberry sauce, you're going to die. I mean, it's, it, it's insane. Like, but this is sort of this mindset. Like, run away. You are in trouble. Get out of here. Preserve yourself. Stock up. Take care. The whole nine yards. And it is... Um, what was it uh, John Hagee, who is a, a guy I'm not a fan of, uh, wrote a book last year on the on the blood moons, saying that the world would end because the moon would be blood moons, meaning it was like just really close to Earth, you know, but that the world was going to end because of this phrase blood moon, and it was it was it was terrible exegesis. It's not a good book. The world didn't actually end. I need a T-shirt listing off how many apocalypses I've survived at this point because it's ridiculous. The Mayan calendar didn't kill me. The blood moons didn't kill me. Y2K didn't kill me. I am the cockroach of humanity, unkillable. <laughs> um, but, but there are folks out there telling you. Now, look at this, though. Think about it a second. You laugh. They're out there telling you there's no hope you're in trouble, right? Your wealth is going to disappear. Your 401K plan can't save you. Nothing can save you. You're all going to die. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end. Um, and David's response is, God takes care of me. I take refuge in the Lord. But still there's this urging. Stock up. Take care of yourself. Run away. Flee, flee, flee. Um, David, like they continue. For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the string to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. Um, This is a, a really dramatic metaphor because you have this slow step-by-step where in the shadows you have this guy knocking his bow and pulling back to shoot at the righteous man and it's not clear what he's referring to like if this is an actual assassin running around um, in Jerusalem I mean it very well could have been it could have been just wicked men who are plotting an overthrow Um, it could be it could be almost anything and I think the cool thing about it being almost anything is we can apply this right you know, the, those evil so-and-sos are going to kill you all, right? Um, these evil people are going to come and take everything you have. They're going to take your comfort. They're going to take your religious freedom. They're going to take this. They're going to take that. They're going to, I mean, like, all of these evil people are plotting. They're going to get you. And we hear this over and over again. Um, it's almost silly in our culture, right? Actually, that's the story of Chicken Little. 
or actually, is it Chicken Little or the Boy Who Cried Wolf? Because this guy never falls in the Chicken Little story. The Boy Who Cries Wolf, what happens? The wolf shows up eventually. And I'm sure one day our culture will actually be destroyed because wolves will be at the door and nobody's going to believe it. Um, except the guy who has all that stuff in his basement from Y2K. He'll be sad. Um, <laughs> so, uh, hey, they're out there. They're in the dark. They're plotting against you. There's an injustice coming. There's evil at the door. It is coming, and the, they are urging self-interest. Take care of yourself. Preserve what you have. You know, do this thing. Um, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, there's two parts to this that are really interesting. It's very poetic. When the foundations are being destroyed, like when everything is coming apart, when, you know, dollars don't work and the alphabet malfunctions and everything else, when the foundations of our culture are collapsing. And mind you, um, there is some of this that is true. Like there is some degree to which, like, there's always sort of a cultural shift happening, right? And there's always sort of a move. And actually within the church, you've got folks who are arguing against like things like biblical inerrancy, like that the Bible is actually the word of God. It, it becomes a suggestion then that we can form and reform. Like there is some of this out there. And there is some like legitimate fears that we have to be aware of and like pay attention to. I make kind of jokes about this, but there are places where this stuff is a big deal to pay attention to. Um, and then what can the righteous do? Meaning... You're helpless. You can't do anything about it, right? This is the advisor saying, hey, run away. The best plan is to run away because what are you going to do about it? There are some translations that attribute this to God saying God can't even stop it at this point, which is silly, right? Um, Danger is coming and there is nothing you can do about it. The foundations are going to fall out from underneath you and there is nothing you can do about it. Um. So that is the first section of this psalm. Like, this is the situation. Be afraid. Be very afraid. The world is ending. The culture is collapsing. And in David's time, this was a lot more possible, right? I mean, like, it could happen now, to be fair. But, like, in David's time, like, the city of Jerusalem was sacked several times in history. That actually did happen, right? David was actually driven out of his home and into hiding by a rebellion at one point. Um, kings were killed by rebels. Saul, David's predecessor, was killed um, in battle against the Philistines, like as they you know, sort of went to overtake the capital. I mean, like this, this could happen um, in this time. And, and he said, well, what can we even do about it? You're helpless. The best plan is to run away. Um, to which David responds. So like all of this fear mongering, all of this terror, all of this, it's all going to end. And David responds, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone. His eyes examine them. There's kind of a cool thing there. All of this panic, all of this fear, all of this terror, all of this run away, run away, run away. I just can't help think of Monty Python and the Knights. Run away! Um, and coconuts, thank you. That was Rebecca who contributed that. Um <laughs> But the, this, like, run away, it's going to end. And David turns around and says, you know what? God's in control. Like, my God has his hand, like, on this. He has not turned away. He has not stopped paying attention. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is, has his hands on everything. He is watching everything. He is with us. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. That phrase, his eyes examine them, actually the phrase 
in Hebrew is his eyelids examine them. That's weird, isn't it? Um, except when you start thinking about what it means. You ever pick up something and take a really close look? What's the thing you do? You squint, right? Like because you're carefully examining or you're really old. Um, you, you squint to carefully look and to examine and to consider. And so what he's saying is, first off, God is in control. God has not stopped being in control. God has not given up control. Um, and God is paying attention. And he is carefully examining. And he knows what the score is. Like, God has not abandoned us. He knows what's going on. Um, God is holding on to everything. And he is paying attention. He knows where it's going. That is a huge deal. Um, when, uh, when I worked at the children's home, we, used to have, we had this high ropes course. Y'all ever go up on a high ropes course? Um, ours was about 40 feet up. So you'd be about 40 feet up off the ground, and you'd be walking across a log, and there was the distinct possibility at any moment you could fall off. But there's a rope tied to your waist, and the rope would hold about ten or 15,000 pounds. I can't remember. It's been a while. And in all likelihood, I used to be a lot heavier, um, but I never weighed 15,000 pounds, right? Like, no matter how far I fall, that rope is going to catch me, right? I ain't getting killed. Um, I ain't going to fall to my death because somebody has got a hold on me. This is the idea here, right? God is watching. God is in control. God is taking care. Um, I was, uh, Rebecca, I watched her kid this morning for a little while. My kids were supposed to watch her children, her child, and she didn't realize how poor of a mistake that was, like how, how big of an error that was. And so the baby started fussing. My children are nowhere in sight. I picked up the baby, and I held it, and he sat quiet for a little while and looked at me, and then he started fussing again. And then I put a song on, like I have a recording of Rebecca singing a song a couple of Christmases ago, and I, I put it on, and he heard Mom's voice, and what did he do? He fussed louder after looking for her, right? Because, because he knows who's in control? Mom. Who takes care of him? Mom. Who feeds him? Mom. Who washes him? Mom. Who, like, when he fusses, sues him? Mom, right? He hasn't learned to be afraid of her yet. Um, <laughs> there's time. <laughs> But this is what God, like, this is the relationship, like, like David is describing here. I am afraid the world is falling apart, but you know what? God is nearby. I can hear his voice sometimes. I know he's nearby. I can fuss, and I know he's going to rescue me from this weird man holding me while he tries to do a sermon, like, <laughs> review before Sunday morning. Anyway, um, God, David says, God's in control. He's got me. God's in control. He's got me. He's watching. He's examining. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love, or, yeah, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Now, that is a strong phrase because we don't usually think about God getting mad or hating, right? There's some human stuff here. I mean, this is it, right? The human element of this, we back up and we look and we see wicked, violent horrible people and what do we say god must hate that like when we are filled with anger and rage at injustice or at awful things that are happening we can back up and say god is diametrically opposed to this we know that god hates evil right that's trickier because like there's a theological 
tension there, and I don't intend to dig into it. I'm sorry. If you really want to do that, talk to me during lunch, and I'll explain to you with my mouth full of brisket or pulled pork. You won't understand me anyway. Um, but there's a big thing here. It's not as though God looks at the violent and says, I am cool with that, right? I'm going to look the other way and let this violence happen. No, God knows. God pays attention. God has his hand on it. And God hates violence. And, like, I guess there's a part of this where God cannot be in the presence of evil. Like, if God's holiness enters near evil, it's obliterated. Like, it is consumed by the fire of God's holiness. Um, there was a woman who was unclean. Like, she was, she was unclean, which is not to say she was evil. She was unclean. She had, like, an illness that made her ritually unclean. And she walked up to Jesus in the crowd and touched him. And she didn't make Jesus unclean. He made her clean. Because God is, by his core, like by his essence, by the nature of who he is, he's holy. And when God encounters unholy, it, 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 is, it is like oil and water times a thousand. Right? And so God hates the violent. God hates those who love violence with a passion. Because he hates wickedness. He hates evil. He hates you know, this, this brokenness that's in the creation. Does that mean that those who love violence can't be redeemed? Of course not. Um, Jesus came to save the wicked, and he did. Um, but we can't pretend like, oh, God's cool with violence. He has a strong response to it. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. That's a bad stop, ain't it? This is like the Old Testament like main event. Um, I think this is probably a reference back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, hey, don't think that God is cool with what, you're, what these people are doing. He'll take care of them. Does that mean he's going to take care of them in this life? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes evil people die of old age, right? Stalin lived a long time, and I would argue he did some pretty evil stuff, right? Um, like evil people sometimes get away with it, but they don't get away with it. All of us ultimately stand before God. All of us ultimately stand before the judge. And the judge looks at us and examines us and knows us. And he is in control. We won't argue our way by him. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Um, And so he ends with this reassurance. Like, look, everything is a mess. God is in control and he is just. And the God... I love the God I follow is righteous and he will take care of his people. Like he loves justice and he'll set things right. So what do we do with that? Like as the sky is falling, what are the, what are the basics of this? Let me, let me jump back and we'll do some history. Okay. There is a point in time toward the end of the original kingdom of Judah where they were in trouble. There was this group of folks, the Babylonians who were the big tough kid on the block. Got it? And the Babylonians, led by a king named Nebuchadnezzar, spell it backwards and I'll give you a special prize later. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, I won't. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, was sort of oppressing the region because he had grown what was more or less a world empire at this point. I mean, it was a really small world empire, but whatever. Um, And so Nebuchadnezzar, um, like the, the Jewish people, they revolted against him because they were not very smart. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of mobilized and said, all right, going to go ahead and kill all of you. And the Jewish people made an alliance with Egypt. 
Guess how that worked out? It didn't. Um, because the Egyptians were not going to fight on their behalf. They were not going to save them from Nebuchadnezzar. Like, it was not going to go well. But the Jewish people backed up and they said, oh my gosh, the enemy is out there. We need to do something. So we're going to find an ally who is big and tough. And guess what? The big and tough ally didn't help them. They still lost. This is a temptation we experience, isn't it? The world is falling apart. I'm going to go where God told me not to go, and I'm going to do things the wrong way to preserve myself. Um, They were assured over and over again, return to God and he'll take care of you. Return to God and he'll take care of you. Actually, many years before under Isaiah, Israel was nearly destroyed. And like while Isaiah was the prophet, he went to the king and he said, hey, just repent and God will take care of you. And there are armies surrounding Jerusalem, and the king repents. And the next day, like a disease probably... Um, something like uh, leprosy or something like spread through the camps and this enemy army ran away because like they were dying. Like God fought on his people's behalf. They didn't have allies that were crazy. They were repentant. They were obedient and, and God took care of them. The second time around, they were not repentant. They made allies. They said, we're going to fight this out. And they lost. And they didn't lose a little. They lost bad. And when the Babylonians came in and wiped out the kingdom, they took everybody worth taking home with them. All of the royals, all of the wealthy people, anybody who had any kind of talent, all of the artists, everyone. They packed them all up and shipped them out, and they left the dregs of society behind. And they resettled them in Babylon, right? Um, And over and over again as this is happening, the prophets, like this would be Jeremiah, said, It's coming. But God's still there. God's watching. God's in control, right? Had they trusted God in the first place, they would have been saved. Even if they hadn't been saved in the moment, God was still in control. And in fact, actually, Isaiah named the general, 70 years beforehand, named the general who would deliver the people out of, um, out of, out of like, uh, uh, their exile. Thank you. Uh, in, in Babylon, the, the, the general's name was Cyrus. Right. And, and so like it was already planned. God knew what was going to happen and he planned it. I'll rescue you. Um, and even though the foundations were crumbling, God saved his people and he knew he was going to save them. And he planned it out and he told him how it was going to happen well in advance because God's in control. Right. God is in control. Um, flash forward to the time that they're in exile. There's a fellow named Daniel. You all have heard of him. Not Rebecca's brother or husband. Um, not, uh, Daniel was uh, one of God's men in the courts of Babylon. And there were a number of times he faced really nasty situations. Um, and Daniel is a great example. I actually read a book this year on, on like living in a culture that's anti-Christian. And they point to Daniel as an example. Because Daniel, the law came along, like laws were passed that you could only pray to the Babylonian gods. And Daniel did pretty much what he had done before. He just didn't change. It's not like he made a big show of it. He just said, well, every morning I get up and I pray in my house, and that's what I'm going to keep doing. And he kept doing it, and he was arrested and thrown to the lions and survived, right? We all know that story. We all learned it in Sunday school. Um, But at the end of the day, who was Daniel's refuge? God was. Um, Flash forward to the New Testament, where Christianity is exploding in a culture that does not want them. And what we see is we see believers running back to Jesus over and over again saying, I know you can kill me, but you can only kill my body because my soul belongs to Jesus. He is my refuge. The foundations may crumble underneath me, but Jesus, my foundation is forever. 
Um, and so we see guys like Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr in the book of Acts. Stephen comes along. He begins to talk about Jesus. He is arrested. He is dragged off. They throw him into a throw him off a cliff, and they're getting ready to stone him. And he gets up, and he tells them about Jesus some more. And then they kill him. And guess what? They only killed his body. Right? He preached the gospel. He was faithful to Christ, like, like in the end. And he was saved. Um, we see this with Peter. I, I've told the story of Peter's end so many times because Peter is, I just, I love the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter led the church for many years. He eventually went into hiding um, and, and hid uh, from the Romans who were trying to get him. And eventually he was arrested under Nero and his wife was crucified. He was forced to watch. And the next day he was crucified. And he said, you know what? I'm not worthy to die the way that my, my Lord did. And so they crucified him upside down, um, which was probably 10 times worse, to be quite honest with you. Um, but what Peter said, like when he was watching his wife die, he said, remember how our Lord loved those who, who did this to him. Like, remember how our Lord was. Over and over again, he ran back to this firm foundation, this rock that will never crumble, right? Our home may go away. Our family may go away. Our wealth, our comfort, our happiness, anything. But Jesus never, ever, ever goes away because Jesus is our, is our escape. He's our refuge. He is our salvation. Like we are forgiven of our sins. We are protected in eternity like we belong to him. Um, what do we do with that? Well... Um, we, we live in a time of cultural shift, folks, right? We remain faithful and we understand Jesus is in control. Sometimes tragedies befall us. It's true. What do we do? Jesus is in control. Jesus is in his holy temple. He watches. He's got his hand on everything. He, he, he's got us. There is no way to undo that. Nothing in this life, but as it Paul says, I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor height nor... No, I'm, I'm butchering it now. Height nor depth, angels nor demons, um, anything in heaven or in hell can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Like at the end of the day, every rotten thing that can happen, every way it looks like the foundation can crumble underneath you, every way everything can ever go wrong, like you can't be Jesus in this. Everything else can break down. I uh, went and watched a tractor pull yesterday. Um, and the coolest part of this tractor pull was there was a handful of these tractors that were, according to Callan, incredibly expensive. Right? Like this guy pulls up in this big heavy truck with all kinds of muscle and you could hear it like in Loma. And the smoke made it look like the place was on fire. Actually, one of those trucks, like, I, I, it struck me as odd because when it started going, the diesel cloud made it look dark, right? Like, it covered the lights and, and like, obscured it, and it looked like we were in the dark. Those things were powerful. And the coolest part of the whole thing was when a truck would gear up and start growling and roaring, and about five feet down the way, you'd see a piece of the transmission go shooting up in the air, and another piece shooting up in the air in the other direction, and then it'd go about three more feet, and that was it. Right? Um, there was one I watched. It was right at the end of the... We left a little early because I'm old and I can't stay up late. Um, we were... Uh, the kids had to tuck me in. The, the, I watched the, the, uh, the guys go out and pick up pieces of the car off the track because they're like, oh, you can't leave this here. Like pieces of the transmission. Like this is anything you'll flee to. Right? 
It may look good. It may look strong. I spent years running away from my own stress or my own worries or my own depression or my own whatever. And I'd, I'd drink too much or I'd, you know, eat too much or I'd hide out in front of the TV. And guess what? Like that big truck, the engine falls right out of the bottom. It will never, ever, ever save you. I know folks that hide in money. Guess what? It will not go with you before Jesus. I know people who hide in their families. Guess what? It won't save you. I know people who think they can hide in, in sort of this idealized version of our culture. Guess what? Jesus is the only thing that's going to stand at the end of it all. Like, as you worry, as you fear, as you have anxiety, understand me that the rock, our foundation, on which the church is built, like Jesus Christ is the only thing that will ever save you. You don't have to run to the mountains. The mountain's underneath you. Right? Just sit down and enjoy the storm. And enjoy it knowing that, like, thunder, lightning, rain, wind, sorrow, depression, pain in our hearts, all of it, like, we can back up and say it is well with my soul, right? The ship may be sinking, and it is well with my soul because I got Jesus under my feet. My refuge, the enemy's never going to climb up over my walls because my refuge is Jesus. He may be in the darkness knocking his arrow, and he can kill my body, but I belong to Jesus. He can lie about me. He can slander me. He can anything. I belong to Jesus. I can screw it up, and I still belong to Jesus because I'm forgiven. That's that's good. Let's pray and let's uh, eat and fellowship and be the body of Christ together, sitting on the rock together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that as as we fear, as we struggle with anxiety, as the news tells us that the end of the world is here and the evil men are all around us, and we know that it might even be true. That our world doesn't end. That, that your church does not end. That your son and the knowledge that your son died for our sins and saved us from ourselves, like that that is our salvation. Help us to know that money disappears, possessions rust, people die. You get drunk, you're hung over in the morning, and you got to do it again to get away. Lord God, that all of these things, like there are no escape, that only Christ can save us. Just touch our hearts and help us to remember that. Those of us who are worried this morning, those of us who are afraid, those of us who are overflowing with anxiety or, or whatever, Lord, help us to run back to that rock over and over again, that safe place we have in Jesus. Amen. Should I pray for the meal right away? Lord, thank you for this very delicious food.